to sing songs like that about God's kingdom coming, every soul knowing Christ, being days like in Ezekiel and in Moses, they were dark days. We're living in dark days right now. And uh, yet God's greatness and the power of His grace, I think, is especially magnified during those times of darkness, like in the book of Esther and uh, in the book of Acts and uh, chapter 25, where we are going to be preaching from today. Acts 25, beginning at verse 13. Hear the word of God. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this, uh, your word. It is our desire to uh, not only worship you and our responses to it, but, Father, to live them out. We pray for your blessing upon the preaching of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Be seated. Let me read you some headlines that I've read over the last uh, couple of weeks. Obama's fuel standards may have unintended consequences. President Obama's 35.5 mile per gallon cafe and the law of unintended consequences. Unintended consequences of nationalization of GM and Chrysler. Obama's Mexico trip highlights unintended consequences of U.S. policy on Mexican farmers. Unintended consequences of managed economy. Unintended consequences of new credit card regs, hate crimes bill, unintended consequences. Obama's regulation leads to another unintended consequence. 
the unintended consequences of immigration reform. And actually, I had to cut out about a dozen more uh, titles that I had seen in the past uh, two weeks. And there are so many of these coming out that one wag said, um, you know, we really ought to rename the law of unintended consequences as the law of Obama. <laughs> now, I don't want to lay the whole blame on Obama because there's really hundreds of congressmen and senators and previous presidents who have made similar kinds of decisions and then regret it and say, oh, wow, we had not intended the consequences. And they have been frustrated uh, by those. We're going to be see seeing a similar thing in this chapter. Uh, let me just do a little bit of review. Last week, we looked at the first 12 verses and we saw an example of politicians who are frustrated with each other and of citizens who are even more frustrated uh, with their politicians. And any time you get a messianic state that has uh, pretensions that go way beyond the limits that the Scripture has set, there's going to be problems. There's going to be things getting bogged down. Uh, there will be uh, frustrations. Now, Festus, we saw, was a conservative who was trying to make a difference. Uh, he seemed to be a half-decent uh, person, but within two weeks, we find him compromising, and even those compromises aren't getting him the things that he had hoped uh, he would be able to accomplish. He was not as ruthless, he was not as sophisticated, definitely not as well-connected as Felix was, and so he really doesn't know what to do. Uh, he's kind of uh, stuck in this section, and so we're going to be looking at the unintended consequences of one little compromise. Well, from Paul's perspective, it was a big compromise, but uh, probably from Festus's perspective, just a little compromise, and the story starts in verse 13. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. Now, I want you to remember that Agrippa was the brother-in-law to the former governor Felix, I uh, had a great interest in what was going on in Caesarea and no doubt has spent a lot of time there in the past and wants to spend some time at this fabulous uh, resort. Uh, the next phrase indicates he has no intention of leaving in a hurry. Uh, verse 14, when they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Well, Festus, after a while, begins to trust King Agrippa and uh, wants to get his advice. Uh, he really can't seek advice from the Jewish leaders like he had previously because they're the ones he's got this dilemma with. So he's thinking, how do I get out of this? And he's getting advice from King Agrippa, the pervert. And I call him a pervert because uh, he had lived for many years in an incestuous relationship with his sister Bernice. But Festus opens up to him because Agrippa is very well known as being loyal to Rome. He can trust Agrippa uh, far more than he can trust uh, some of the other Jewish uh, leaders. And it never ceases to amaze me how quickly moral perverts in our Congress and in our Senate can become trusted leaders and speakers and advisors. And that's what's going on here. Festus kind of just overlooks all of that uh, and uh, presents a sticky problem to uh, Agrippa. Now, first of all, Festus, this is under Roman numeral 2, tries to paint himself as being a very just a man. Let's begin reading at verse 14. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case uh, before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face, 
and has an opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Now, it seems like uh, pious, very nice uh, words, but the fact of the matter is Paul's already been tried three times in court. Nobody's been able to prove anything against him, and it's going to become evident very, very quickly that Festus is a hypocrite. He, he wants to give the illusion that he's a, a decent judge, but he's really a hypocrite. John Phillips said, The world is always ready to level the charge of hypocrisy against some failing church member. It conveniently forgets the political hypocrite, the business hypocrite, the intellectual hypocrite, the professional hypocrite, and in this case, the judicial hypocrite it has in its own midst. Now, I'd like to reverse that because I'm talking to Christians and say it's so easy for us to point the finger at the hypocrisy of Congress and the Senate and judges and other people out there and to be totally blind at our own hypocrisy. And we've got hypocrisy uh, in many different ways. It is hypocrisy, for example, to be more concerned about the unintended consequences of sin than about the sin itself. And so when there is a finger pointing out there, we've got three fingers uh, pointing back at ourselves. And we need to make it our prayer. Lord, make me principled. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I want to be living by Your grace day by day. Now, in any case, Festus's views on justice are, if you look at the whole picture, they're, they're half decent. Uh, he didn't live them out completely, but they're half decent views. He's a conservative with conservative instincts. He next speaks of his views of Judaism in verses 17 through 19. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. Uh, when the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Now, the word religion there is a pretty interesting uh, word. It's not the ordinary word that you would have for religion. It's a term that means superstitious worship of demons. Uh, the word is desidaimonias. Desidaimonias. A daimon is a demon, and desidaimonias means the superstitious worship of demons. Now, I'm sure Agrippa winced at this major faux pas on the part of this newbie uh, here because Jews did not worship demons. They were monotheists. This is a ridiculous statement. By the way, this was an unintended uh, insult to Agrippa because he was a practicing um, um, follower of Judaism uh, as well. He probably had no idea. But anyway, to me, this shows the naivete of Festus who, uh, when he's coming to rule this country, doesn't even know the kind of people that he is ruling, has no idea that they are monotheists. And many rulers are just like him, totally out of touch with reality. They're up in their own little world up there in Washington, D.C. Next, his views about Jesus are summarized in the last half of verse 19 and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. Now, poor Festus doesn't have any idea of the depth of his ignorance. He's talking about the creator of the universe. He's talking about the one in whom he lives and moves and has his being. And he says, oh yeah, it's a certain Jesus. So he's ignorant about Jesus, totally ignorant about the greatest missionary that has ever lived who is before him. And in the next chapter he says he's mad. He thinks of Christianity as being utter foolishness. So even though he's painting a picture that he's a pretty good judge, he is naive. He's told, it shows he's not read anything. He doesn't know anything about his country. He's out of touch 
uh, with uh, reality. Now, so far, Festus shows himself to be a greenhorn, and he wants Agrippa to kind of show him the ropes. Uh, could you give me some advice here on how to deal with these problems, Agrippa? That's basically what he's saying. Now, if Agrippa hasn't already guessed at his incompetence, it is clearly revealed in verses 20 through 23. Verse 20 says, And because I was uncertain of such questions. So he's admitting, I don't know, I'm ignorant. He would rather admit to his ignorance than to admit that he has deliberately tried to give the Jews a favor. And uh, judges... I guess, don't like to admit to the fact that they're unjust. <laughs> you know, they take bribes. Uh, they have favoritism or politicism. So he prefers to plead ignorance than to plead the fact that uh, he really has not done a good thing. And it never ceases to amaze me how many people get examined or tried uh, in the Congress who are brilliant people, but all of a sudden they can't seem to remember anything. Uh, and you see that on, on the TV. They prefer to admit to ignorance than to admit to guilt. Well, anyway, pleading ignorance may work with people. It does not work before the throne room of God. And Romans 13 and so many passages indicate every magistrate out there is accountable before God. They are going to stand for the things that they have said. Now, secondly, he shows that he already unnecessarily caved in to Jewish demands. I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. Now, I want you to notice he's left out two words that he had said to Paul earlier to be judged before me. Now, here he's admitting. Now, I've, I've, I was intending to abdicate uh, jurisdiction, uh, but uh, he hadn't said that to Paul. Now, if you know Roman law, you know it would have been a bit embarrassing for Festus to even admit that he has so easily relinquished jurisdiction to the Jews on this, but the alternative is even more embarrassing. See, the alternative, he knows that these Jews <clears throat> already want to kill him without him, Paul, being even tried. He knows he's not going to get a fair hearing in, in that court. <coughs> <clears throat> it's not going to be an impartial court. And he knows about Paul's innocence. He's reviewed all of the court transcripts which all point to the innocence of Paul's. And so his attempt to please the Jews has boomeranged on him and he has no idea what to do. Now, later on in chapter 26, Agrippa is going to say, well, why don't you just let him go? <laughs> well, that was too easy a solution uh, to dawn on Festus. No, he's thinking politically rather than in terms of justice. But verse 21 is where Festus's real concerns come to play. This is why he's really sweating. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Now, it's going to be evident in chapter 26 that this court case, getting appealed to uh, Caesar, to Nero, also surnamed Augustus, this would have been a major embarrassment. Nero did not like these kinds of trivial cases getting appeared, uh, appealed to him, clogging his courts. Uh, this would have been majorly frustrating, which may, by the way, explain why Festus only lasted about two years uh, in Israel. We don't know for, uh, for sure, but Festus is sweating bullets. If he had simply given Paul justice, 
and let the political flax strike where it may, he would have had far fewer problems than he is presently facing. But by making a political move, rather than a move of justice, he has a new dilemma. He still has the Jews irritated with him, but now he's got Nero potentially irritated with him. And thirdly, it's going to be majorly embarrassing to even admit this to Agrippa. He's going to be most indebted to Agrippa if that king can help him out of his, um, out of his dilemma. By the way, the, the phrase many days, this probably explains why it took many days before he had the courage to even broach this subject with Agrippa. Now, of course, this in itself shows a lack of leadership. It was utterly unnecessary for Agrippa to even be involved. But Agrippa, who's a manipulator looking for ways to control, he's more than happy to hear this case. Uh, verses 22 through 23. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Now keep in mind, Agrippa is an inferior. He, he didn't have to hear the case. Festus wants him to hear the case. Verse 23. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Ooh, ooh, ooh. I think Festus is cringing. Why in the world did Agrippa have to bring all of these prominent men? I thought it was just going to be Agrippa hearing this, but now we've got all of these guys coming in. We have no idea what the motivations of Agrippa were on this, but God uses it to preach the gospel in the next chapter to every prominent man in that city. I love it. I just love the way uh, the Lord works. It's a beautiful thing. Now, politics is one of the seven leverage points in a society that must be captured by the gospel before you can claim that that nation is a Christian nation. All seven leverage points uh, must be captured. What's happened here in chapter 26 is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has penetrated politics almost captured the heart of Agrippa and perhaps has captured the hearts of some of the other people that are there. When you read Philippians, you certainly get the impression that most of the Praetorian Guard is saved and there's a number of other people uh, amongst those prominent people uh, that came uh, who, who perhaps were saved uh, as well. But let me list for you, just as a, as a side note, these uh, seven leverage points that need to be captured. Religion. You've got to change the religion of a country. You know, if it's a Buddhist country, until the nation officially says, okay, we're now a Christian country, you can't call it a Christian nation. That's obvious, right? So religion, civil government and legal system, the arts and entertainment is number three, education is number four, five is business, science, and technology, then media, and then family and social welfare. Let me go through those uh, seven again. Some of you are writing these down. Uh, the first one is religion. Uh, we used to be a Christian nation. There's a number of Supreme Court decisions that have said that America is, was founded as a Christian nation. It continues to be a Christian nation. There's congressional uh, 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 records that have indicated that, presidential declarations. So whatever you think about whether there was a coup or not at the time of the Constitution, subsequent to that, there is clearly a declaration. You look at your money. We have declared, I guess I left my wallet over there, we're declared to be one, uh, no, uh, in God we trust, right? So this was a Christian nation, but now the humanists have taken over this leverage point. So that's the first one. The second one is civil government and the legal system have to be captured. It's not enough to be theoretically a Christian nation if you don't have Christian laws. 
And so God's laws have to be substituted for man's laws before you can say, yes, this is a Christian nation now. Otherwise, it's a pagan nation with some Christian influences in it. And uh, we cannot be satisfied in this nation with any kind of secular approximation to biblical law. It's got to be explicitly biblical law through and through. That's the second leverage point. Third leverage point is the arts and media. A lot of people don't have the foggiest notion, the degree to which they have been impacted by the arts and the media uh, of our nation. You know, when you're an artist and you're studying, uh, you know, the, the art of Greece and Rome, you're being impacted by that, right? When you're uh, looking more to the entertainment of the world uh, than you are uh, to uh, biblical entertainment and art, you're being influenced, instead of influencing that culture. That is an incredibly, profoundly influential part of society. And if you can capture the arts and the entertainment, you've got a chance uh, and this leverage point for taking the whole society. This is one of the tactics that some of the nation-discipling missionaries are using in Iraq and in other places. And I've got some fabulous stories to tell you about that. So that's number three. Fourth one, education. See, education can't just be superficially Christian. You can't take secular education and sprinkle prayer and a few verses into it and say, okay, this is, this is now Christian education. No, your methodology of education has to come from the Bible. Your goals have to come from the Bible. Your curriculum, your content has to come from the Bible. Even the classroom. A lot of people don't realize this. Even using a classroom is really not a biblical concept. You, you, you start thinking about how, how Jesus educated His people. It's radically different than the way we do things. And how you educate makes a profound difference on whether or not a nation... Well, our nation is a secular educated nation, isn't it? I think we'd have to admit that. So it can't be a Christian nation. And uh, we have got to be rethinking from the ground up, not imitating the world, but from the ground up, and I can recommend all kinds of good books to help you on that, how we can be pushing for a thoroughly Christian education. Fifth is business, science, and technology. Uh, The presuppositions of science have got to come from the Bible. And yet, what do so many Christians do? They say, oh, the Bible can't speak to science. In fact, there's a whole book I've got in my, in my library. It says, uh, Science Held Hostage by the Bible. They don't want the Bible, you know, impacting science. But no, true science, not science falsely so-called, true science is going to be thinking God's thoughts after Him. He's the creator of this universe. And if we're not thinking His thoughts after Him, we're misinterpreting science. So, um, it's got to be business, science, and technology, then the media. Uh, wow, incredibly powerful. If you can begin to capture the media, you're going to have a powerful influence upon a nation. This is one of the first things that William Carey did as a missionary in India is he began developing alternative media sources. He began uh, distributing newspapers uh, to the public. If you're not subscribed to any Christian news media on the web or by paper, you need to do so. There's a lot of uh, good media out there. Then family, the seventh one is family and social welfare. We've got to be thinking through uh, not how to uh, do things the way the world does it, not dating and uh, husband and wife relationships and careers and all of those things the way the world does it. We've got to think from the Bible up. Lord, how do you want my family governed? Now, here's the thing. Because 
the church of the first few centuries did focus on capturing those seven leverage points. Not only was Rome, by the time of Constantine, uh, taken over by the gospel in profoundly transformational ways, but country, even before that, was Armenia. Country after country began succumbing uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got the exact inverse of that today. It's because the church has looked to the world in those seven leverage points that the church has been captured by humanism. We've not captured our society. We've completely ignored these leverage points. So that's kind of a side, a side uh, 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 bypath here. But I, I bring it up because here's one leverage point that Paul was capturing. He was bringing the gospel to bear in a powerful way. We'll look at how powerful it was into politics and demanding that kings and citizens bow their knees before King Jesus. Really, really important. Okay, back to our text. The remaining verses summarize the two biggest problems that Festus had upon his hands. Verse 24 shows he had a serious local problem. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assemblies of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. This is not a peaceable petition of the Jews. Now, the word for crying out means, here's a dictionary definition, quote, to use one's voice at high volume, call, shout, cry out, or to roar like a lion. Okay? So these political leaders must have been incredibly incensed, frustrated. They're on a verge of a riot. They're mad. They're, they're mad as hornets. Okay? Now, here's the problem. It's unthinkable for a Roman judge to just hand over a Roman citizen uh, to the Jews in their jurisdiction, but it's even more unthinkable for him to lose control of the Jewish uh, population. What a fix you can get yourself into when you make these little compromises, you know, that are being made all of the time in our nation. The sensible thing for Festus to have done, from a pagan perspective, okay, in hindsight, he probably wished he had done this, would have been to tell Paul, okay, look, You've been given a bad shake. We're just going to take you out of the nation. Don't come back. Okay? We're going to give you a military escort, give you a safe conduct out of the nation. Don't come back. You're going to get lynched here. It was way past that. It was no way uh, he would have been able to get that easy way out. So Festus has, and, and the reason is he's appealed to Caesar. Okay? This is a legal move that means they can't just ignore it. So Festus has serious social problems on his hands with these Jews. Then in verses 25 through 27, it outlines a serious legal dilemma as well. <clears throat> it says, But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. What a mess. What a mess he has gotten himself into. Festus is right now declaring Paul to be innocent. Now, wait a shake. If Paul is innocent... How come he has to appeal to Caesar? Well, he has to appeal to Caesar. That implies he's not getting a fair shake in Festus's uh, court. That's exactly, there's no other reason. He also admits to incompetence because he doesn't even know what charges to write uh, to, against him uh, for Caesar. 
he has to bring charges for Caesar to even hear it. And so the implication is that Festus has decided against Paul, and yet Festus has now declared him to be innocent. So he's gotten himself into a fix. Another thought that would come to these men is this. If Paul is innocent, why aren't you letting him go? The answer is that Paul has appealed to Caesar. Once an appeal has been made, you can't just... You can't just undo it. Now, Paul could undo it by saying, okay, I guess I'm not going to appeal to Caesar after all. But the fact that Paul is not um, uh, doing away with that indicates he doesn't think too much of this court. He doesn't think he's going to get a fair shake here either. Another thought might be, what's the big deal? Let him go to Caesar. But that's the problem. If I let him go to Caesar without proper charges, I'm going to get in trouble with Caesar. Now, Caesar didn't like these kinds of cases uh, coming uh, before him. And then everybody is thinking, ah, so you're saying that we need to make up some trumped-up charges against him so that the case will look like it's a legitimate case when it goes to Caesar. I think that's exactly what's going on here. Uh, it would be pretty silly if we don't come up with some charges against Paul. And that is exactly why Paul did not undo his appeal to Caesar. So Festus is embarrassed. He's in trouble no matter which way he turns. And he's asking these men, guys... Could you help me figure out a way out of this fix? Unintended consequences. Festus is suffering under them. Paul suffers under them. They're like the laws of harvest. They're going to happen. Uh, they're, uh, going, we are not going to be able to escape from the unintended consequences of the decisions, the ridiculous decisions that have been coming out of Washington, D.C., simply because we're Christians. No, we're going to suffer right along with the rest of the population as well. There are laws of harvest, and we're going to be seeing more and more miserable, unintended consequences of our nation's fascist policies in years to come. So what are we supposed to do? Well, I believe we can imitate Paul. Paul did not get frustrated. He did not give up heart. In fact, we're going to see... Uh, that Paul was able to see God's purposes in all of these events. During his stay here, he had written the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. You read those four epistles and you begin to understand some of the worldview that Paul held on to that enabled him to have joy in the midst of unintended consequences. In fact, those epistles, especially Ephesians and Philippians, they just exude with joy, had incredible joy, even in the midst of uh, this, um, this miserable situation. Now, I'm not going to cover every issue in those books that helped to sustain Paul. There's other issues like predestination and spiritual warfare and community and prayer and stuff like that. But I do want to highlight five issues that really gave Paul joy in the midst of unintended consequences. Hey, first thing that sustained Paul was a supreme confidence in God's control. Now, back in chapter... Uh, 23, in verse 11, Jesus appeared to him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You must, I love that word must, you must bear witness at Rome. The festuses of this world cannot thwart God's purpose and even the unintended consequences of Festus's miserable decision are going to brilliantly be used by the, uh, the Lord uh, for advancing His purposes. Uh, in Philippians 1, 12 through 13, Paul said this, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. 
Those things have actually turned out for our good. And you too can have an absolute confidence that God is going to be using the unintended consequences from what go on in our state capitals and in Washington, D.C. for the furtherance of the gospel, for the good of the church, and hopefully to wake up the church and bring reformation to the church, bring repentance uh, to the church. But it is for our good. Amen? So that's one thing we could be confident in. The second that sustained Paul in these chapters was a greater sense of awe at God's majesty than he had in man's majesty. Now, if you look at verse 23, chapter 25, verse 23, he uses a special word for that that's translated pomp here. It's the word fantasia. Fantasia. It's a word that describes the glory that was intended to put awe into you. This is the word that was used in Hebrews 12 to speak of the fantasia, the wondrous sight of God that was so amazing that Hebrews says, uh, here's the words of Moses, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. So, the sight of civil government can put awe into you and the sight of God can put awe into you. But the more you meditate upon the greatness of God, the less the pomp and the power of political entities will appear. Now, some people, they're scared to death of what's going to be happening in our country. And they're scared to death of things that are going on in, in China and other countries like that. But Paul knew that the Agrippas and the Festuses of this world were no match for King Jesus. Here's what he said in Philippians 2, 11 and 12. He guarantees this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the glory of heaven that drives out the fear of man and enables Paul in the next chapter to teach Agrippa and Festus, you must bow before King Jesus. This is just a remarkable statement from him. The fear of God is absolutely essential. And uh, you need to develop the fear of the Lord and you'll spend much less time fearing what the Agrippas of this world will be able to do. Third issue that Paul brings up in his epistles is that he had dual citizenship. Okay, he was a citizen of Rome, but he was also, and more importantly, a citizen of heaven. And his citizenship in heaven had far more perks and far more power than any Roman would be able to muster. In Ephesians 2.19... He spoke of believers being citizens of God's kingdom. Now, I didn't make him escape us. Some people misinterpret that and they say, yeah, we shouldn't even worry about politics. We're citizens of heaven. No, Paul in this chapter is claiming his Roman citizenship. He's appealing to the rights that that citizenship gave to him. But the point is that his heavenly citizenship, <coughs> excuse me, the point is, that his heavenly citizenship made him realize he is part of an army that is demanding unconditional surrender of Rome to King Jesus. Unconditional surrender. Now that seems like such an idealistic, such an impossible goal. Many people just, ah, they just dismiss that out of hand. But listen to Philippians 3.20. Paul said, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able to subdue all things to Himself. Now, 
people might question whether Jesus is really able to subdue politics to himself. But which is really harder, to raise your body from the dead or to subdue politics to King Jesus? And yet this verse says it's the same power which is going to accomplish both things. Uh, death is simply the last enemy to be destroyed and put under Christ's feet. But prior to that, 1 Corinthians 15 says, every other enemy must be subdued before Jesus Christ before He comes back to subdue death. And so our heavenly citizenship gives us perspective. I think it's really important to hold on to this because, hey, if you die, who cares? Who cares? We're going to heaven, right? Uh, That's where our ultimate citizenship is. And at the same time, this citizenship makes us realize we are part of a greater cause, a far greater cause than simply helping some pagan politician to win the election. Now, our vision's got to be bigger than that. It's got to be bigger than that. Sure, we are involved in, in, in helping candidates to win, but our goal is much bigger than that. We are part of God's heavenly kingdom that commands unconditional surrender of all American citizens and all American governors. You see, the prayer of the citizen of heaven is, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what our prayer should be. We can never neglect the demands of our citizenship in heaven. It gives us comfort, but it also tells us how we ought to live within our earthly citizenship. But the epistles bring up a fourth thing that helped Paul to have joy in the midst of unintended consequences, and that is spirit-given patience. Not humanistic patience, spirit-given patience. Ephesians 4 indicates that the growth of Christ's kingdom is going to be a long, gradual process over, over time. In fact, Ephesians indicates that not only is there going to be a long period in which there is spiritual battle against Satan's uh, territory before uh, he is finally bound, but a long period in which the church is tossed to and fro by every wind and doctrine. But he says it's not going to stay that way all the time. There is going to be growth in doctrine. And we've seen that. You know, in the early centuries, they settled the doctrine of of the Trinity and the nature of Christ. And there's other doctrines that have been settled. But Ephesians 4 guarantees that eventually the church is going to be holy. Wow. The church is going to be holy. That's an amazing goal. And the church is going to all have the same doctrine. None of these doctrinal divisions that we have all over the place, but it takes patience to be working towards that goal. Too many people are short-sighted. They only want to have goals that we can achieve within our lifetime. What I'm saying to you is we've got to have goals that are for the long haul, even if it means only our children or our grandchildren are going to enjoy a Christian America, involve yourself with patience in the kind of goals that the Scripture sets for you, not what some politician says is achievable. Okay? You've got to have God's goals. And here's what he wrote in Ephesians during this imprisonment. In Ephesians 1.21, he said that Christ is presently, quote, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he insisted in Colossians 1.16 that Christ's redemption reaches to everything in this universe. Now, there is a time for everything. The death and the regeneration of the whole universe is going to be the, the final thing. But he says this, For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, 
All things were created through Him and for Him. And then he talks about how the only way this could be accomplished is as redemption is applied to these all things. He says, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. Now, if you're going to have Paul's kind of vision, you're going to have to have a supernatural patience. You're going to have to say, Lord, give me, give me your vision. Give me your patience to be fighting for the long haul and to never get discouraged no matter what happens on the short term. You see, America was not taken overnight by the humanists. They had patience. You read some of their articles. They, over a hundred years ago, they've been talking about how they had to take all of these seven leverage points of our society and they've been systematically chipping away while Christians have just bailed out. They've had patience. We need to have the same patience to take back those seven leverage points uh, in America and to at least uh, see the possibility that in our generation, maybe our children's or our grandchildren's generation, we will see a thoroughgoing Christian nation. Now, of course, it takes Paul's fifth characteristic to find joy in these circumstances, faith. It takes faith to see everything from God's perspective and not from your own perspective. It takes faith to say the things that are said in Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians. And I urge you to put on the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's Ephesians 6, verse 16. Do not be overwhelmed with the greatness of the evil that is in America in our nation. Realize Paul's promise in Romans 5, verse 20, that where sin abounds, and I think sin abounds in our nation, right? That where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Much more. Amen? Amen. Let me read, end by reading you a poem. Just where you stand in the conflict, there is your place. Just where you think you are useless, hide not your face. God placed you there for a purpose, whatever it be. Think He has chosen you for it. Work loyally. Gird on your armor. Be faithful at toil or rest. Whichever it be, never doubting, God's way is best. Out in the light or the darkness, stand firm and true. This is the work which your Master gives you to do. Amen. Father, we thank You for the work that You have entrusted to us many times. We think it's way beyond us and we reinvent what our goals should be in society. But I pray that You would give us the bigness of vision that the Apostle Paul had of seeing thrones and dominions and principalities and all of these things, seeing Satan uh, being bound and seeing humanism being uh, uh, chased out and seeing, Father, the righteousness of Your kingdom established in nation after nation. We thank You for the incredible vision that You gave to the early church fathers, Athanasius, who had such a triumphant vision that uh, he saw demons fleeing and he saw idols being destroyed and uh, he saw... Uh, Rome beginning to crumble to the gospel and so many other church fathers had the faith of the Apostle Paul. Give this faith, O God, to the church of Jesus Christ. Bring reformation. Help the church to uh, not leave any square inch of planet earth uh, out from under the lordship of King Jesus. But we recognize it's going to take a powerful move of Your grace to be able to achieve this. We thank You, Father, for the dark times that You have allowed us to fall into because uh, this is a part of Your Romans 1 judgment. 
and yet we see a, a parallel to Esther where you allowed the Israelites there because of their failure to submit to you, their failure to repent, to be almost on the brink of extinction before you completely turned things around and caused your laws to triumph even in that empire. Father, do that in our own day in a far greater, in a far prof more profound way. And uh, we'll be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.